I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Advances in cancer therapy have been a major contributor to the decline in breast cancer deaths over the last decades. Even with these advances, though, drug resistance, when tumors either don't respond at all or become resistant to anti-cancer drugs, remains a serious clinical challenge. So how exactly do cancer cells evade the drugs designed to kill them? What's next in the science to develop strategies to prevent or overcome drug resistance and improve outcomes in breast cancer patients? And what role can new technologies like liquid biopsies play? There are few people you'd want to ask these questions to more than Dr. Surat Chandralapati. Dr. Chandralapati is laboratory head of the Human Oncology and Pathogenesis Program at the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. He's also a BCRF Scientific Advisory Board member and has been a BCRF researcher since 2015. Before a conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Surat Chandralapati. Dr. Chandralapati, thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. So, of course, uh, I want to talk with you about resistance to therapy and the progress that you are making, that can be made, that you hope to make um, in those areas. But um, given our times, uh, I think I should start and would love to start with a, a very brief um, coronavirus update. And really just in terms of what are you hearing? What are you hearing from the breast cancer community? And what are you hearing from your patients? Yeah, Chris, this is obviously an unprecedented time. Um, as an oncologist, I think, um, you know, I get these phone calls. Um, uh, really, there are two sort of streams of questions. One is, um, you know, what can I do to avoid getting coronavirus? I have breast cancer um, and I, I don't want to get coronavirus. And then on the other side is, um, are we ignoring my breast cancer. And, you know, the answer to those in some ways um, competing questions is uh, we're here to, you know, care for your breast cancer and to treat it as the uh, disease that it is, um, but to recognize there's this um, this unprecedented risk out there and we need to do your care in a way that's tailored to this moment. Um, but we're still very much in the business of um, trying to make sure that we offer the very best treatments um, for uh, for breast cancer. So let's talk about those treatments and let's talk about your research in particular. Um, so your area of research I have seen described as solving the mysteries of drug resistance and improving response to targeted therapies. Is that how you think of it? Are, are you trying to solve a mystery? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, one of the first things we want to figure out about cancer is um, how can we cure it? How can we treat it and and make it make those tumors shrink? Um, and with breast cancer, we've solved a little of that problem, right? We've developed therapies over many years. 
um, through the work of many, many people, um, we've developed some basic understandings of what makes some breast cancers tick. And uh, when I've come in, uh, I've seen that, and, and the question I struggle with is, why does it work and then stop working? What is what is happening there? Yeah. Um, because if we could just make those treatments work indefinitely, then I think we would have um, a far better solution. So, yeah, re- resistance lies at the heart of um, the the research that I do. What defines or describes resistance to therapy. So for a lay person like me, we always hear about resistance, you know, generally, you know, I'll hear it in terms of antibiotics. Don't take too many antibiotics because you'll increase resistance to their effectiveness. Resistance in a tumor, you know, resistance in in breast cancer um, is something different. That's right. there are there are similarities to antibiotic resistance, um, but um, I would start by saying there are two classes. First, there are cancers that we give a treatment to, and those cancers clearly don't care. They just sort of proceed on as though we didn't treat them. Mm-hmm. That's a sort of intrinsic resistance, and that's less common um, overall. Um, and then there is the so-called acquired resistance. That is a cancer that for six months, for three years, was treated with uh, a drug and seemed to be well-behaved under that regime, maybe shrunk some. Um, and then suddenly um, started to grow, started to go into new places. And, and that change in behavior is really the resistance that my lab has really focused in on uh, because it's so common, such a common occurrence for patients um, who have had um, particularly the more advanced breast cancers. How, how common is common? And, and I found myself wondering, are there any signs in advance, any commonalities where um, you're kind of getting a hint that resistance might occur. So I guess let's start with the beginning part, which is how common is it? We think about it mainly in the setting of um, where patients have advanced disease, so-called stage four breast cancer, um, where cancer has spread outside of the breast and we're predominantly treating with, um, with drugs, oral drugs, IV drugs. But has it, had, um, has it metastasized because the resistance was there, meaning if the resistance didn't occur, it wouldn't have gotten to the stage that you just described? And I know metastasis can occur for all sorts of reasons, but when you're looking at it, are you talking about the type of metastasis that has occurred because there was a resistance in the first place, or is there now resistance now that you're finding the cancer in the different organs? Uh, that's a good question and a little complicated. Um, if um, a cancer presents for the first time as a cancer that's not just in the breast but is in the breast and, say, the bone, well, that's a cancer that's never been exposed to a therapy. Um, so it may have that so-called intrinsic resistance, but it certainly wouldn't have a acquired resistance. It didn't get exposed to a therapy and change or adapt or evolve. Um, but sometimes 
we actually do see that. We see a patient who presented with a primary breast cancer, had it removed surgically, um, received hormone therapy, for instance, and after years on hormone therapy, a breast cancer arises um, in a new site. And that's one that um, is resistant. Did it? Did the resistance fuel its spread? Probably not, but um, we don't know if sometimes the resistant cancer takes on new properties that allow them to spread. But I tend to think of this, to answer it more simply, uh, as separate processes. The cancer spreads, and that um, the cancer that has spread is resistant. To therapies at, at that point. To therapy, right. Get, right. Yep. And getting back, I think I might have cut you off in terms of how common is it? Because I, I would assume that All right. this is an area of concern for someone. And I, I want to ask you about that in a moment. But how common is it? Yeah. So for cancers that have spread that are stage four or metastatic, um, most of them, I would say, um, on the order of 80 to 90 percent, will eventually figure out and become resistant to the therapy we give. The, the timing of that is quite variable and, 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 and remarkably so. So for one patient um, on a um, very common regimen of a hormone uh, and a targeted therapy combined, um, one person, their cancer might respond and then develop resistance in six months. And another person with, treated with the same regimen, with the same characteristics, uh, might respond and then develop resistance uh, six years later. Mm. So one is six months and one is six years. And that's um, obviously, uh, there, there, are those, there are some intrinsic properties different about those cancers, and we want to understand that. And are there signs, or is it like a light switch? Is that resistance gradual, and from your perch, you see it coming? Or is it sudden, and all of a sudden, one day it's working, and the next day it's not? Well, that's a really important question. Uh, whether we can develop technologies that can tell us when it's coming so that we can sort of be ahead of it. Um, Right now, the standard way that we find this out is because we do serial uh, imaging and blood tests like what we call tumor markers, uh, or we sort of listen to the patient for what symptoms might be happening. And so it's somewhat crude that after three or four months, we'll see if the th treatment's working. Um, and... Um, so things might be happening in a much um, earlier time point, but we don't have um, ready access necessarily to technologies that can tell us about that. But if we could find it out earlier when it's just a few cells as opposed to yeah. you know, a large number, then that may enable us to develop treatments that work better for the resistant cancers. Listening to you, I, the, the word that keeps coming to my mind is uncertainty. And I'm thinking about kind of the emotional challenge of that. You know, I'm imagining that you are working with patients who have already gone through what they have gone through um, and who, like any of us, would be looking for something that resembles 
you know, I put the word in quotes, control or, or certainty. We all, you know, seek that in our lives and we probably can never have that as I think maybe even this current pandemic is showing us, uh, having control over life is pretty tough to get, but I assume that's the goal. But then there's this uncertainty that a certain percentage of cases, this uh, resistance occurs. And then there's the added uncertainty that the timing can be different. Um, it's just emotionally, uh, I would think this has to be something of a challenging area. Am, am I kind of imagining the situation correctly? No, I think you're right that um, we want to be able to, you know, have some understanding of of the processes that are happening and, and not just that they're happening, but when they're happening and um, be able to plan accordingly and to have control. I agree. Um, and having, um, I think, measures of what's happening um, that are, you know, telling us about in more detail whether someone is more likely to be uh, have a cancer that's in the type that's likely to develop resistance in six months versus 10 years can be helpful, particularly to the one who's in the 10-year the group, right? Um, and um, also gives us, um, you know, tools to be able, I mean, gives us the insight that we might want to do something different for that those that are in that, you know, more likely to be six months kind of group. Um, so I think understanding uh, better that being able to make it a little more granular, yeah. uh, I think is helpful for patients and it's helpful for obviously physicians as well. This I assume is one of the um, hard parts and, and, you know, the quintessential $64,000 question, which is why would some tumors be resistant? You know, maybe this is obvious, but in, in looking at your research and looking at the work that you've done, um, so I realized potentially this, maybe this is just a simple question and I, I just wasn't um, getting it. But for example, in the ER positive patients, um, if the aromatase inhibitors, the, 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 the inhibitors that prevent the production of estrogen and thereby starve the cancer of, of the fuel that, that ER positive patients that defines that, how does how does that cancer metastasize if it doesn't actually have the fuel that it needs to grow? I mean, is, I guess is that the the core of the question that you're trying to discover? Yeah. What what is it exactly that makes the cancer tick? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, what allows it to start ticking again? And um, you know the the two things that I think we've um, elaborated better is first that um, when the cancers for the ER positive cancers that are treated with hormone therapy, and this is what we've worked a lot on, um, when they become resistant, they don't suddenly turn into a cancer that resembles a melanoma or a lung cancer and starts, you know, looking for other sorts of fuel, if you will. Um, they actually try to reactivate that hormone program. Mm. And the way they do that is just by developing mutations in the DNA, very specifically for those genes that work on the estrogen program. Um, and so they're addicted in a way 
to this program and they try to reactivate it rather than trying to turn themselves into something completely different. And that's um, perhaps not surprising, but that's what, by learning that, we've then developed new uh, drugs that can target that pathway in different ways. So if one hormone therapy doesn't work and it's because of mutation in the hormone pathway, then we can potentially use another drug specifically in the hormone pathway. Um, and that will you know, work again. So it's targeting that core addiction of the cancer. I'm curious about liquid biopsies. Um, and I know many folks are curious about liquid biopsies. What should folks understand about how they work and how they should think about them or potentially could think about them in their own situations? Yeah, it's a great question. This is a new area and you know, didn't exist really 10 years ago. Um, the idea that tumors secrete stuff into the blood, including their DNA, and that um, can then be detected um, is really um, an amazing new technology and allows us potentially to understand properties of the cancer and follow them through blood tests rather than um, through removing the tumor or biopsying the tumor. Um, it isn't yet a complete replacement for tumor biopsies because there are things we can do with the tumor biopsy we can't yet do with plasma, but we're increasingly learning much more of what we can do. It's an area that technology is developing quickly. And, um, you know, I think research is going to enable us to use liquid biopsies to replace a lot of what we do with tumor biopsies in the, in the future. So uh, it's a really important area of research because I think the, the upside of liquid biopsies is that it's relatively easy to collect things over time. And, and you know, as I mentioned, cancers evolve, cancers change, and we want to be able to track that. Moreover, the liquid may be sort of collecting from if, let's say, a patient has a liver and a lung metastasis. Well, the liquid, the blood is really sampling from both. Um, so we may be able to get information that's more comprehensive. Um, so there are reasons why I think this is a, a very exciting technology and um I'm thankful that uh, that you know BCRF is helping to support research on it. Do you still remember what the reaction was? I, I get you you presented that in San Antonio. It's uh, um, I think about uh, four and a half five years ago at this point. Um, do you remember what the what, what was the reaction like for you around around that work? Yeah, I think people were very um, excited about the. Um, potential for this technology. And we just had another paper come out um, a month ago on following patients serially over time yeah. um, on a clinical trial and seeing the evolution of the cancers, you know, through these liquid biopsies, through a blood test. Um, and um, just to know that we could use that to follow how the cancer was changing was really um very powerful, and we couldn't have done it otherwise. Yeah. And the, the result of the most recent study was? 
that we saw these new mutations arise um, either in the estrogen receptor or in this other gene called P10. Um, so, so this was a study where we were combining two drugs, an ER drug and another drug against something called PI3 kinase, a, a gene that's mutated in about 30% of breast cancers. And these this two-drug combination, which is you know, um, uh, been recently approved, uh, we were finding that mutations were arising um, within a few months to either ER or PI3K. And it told us that the cancer, if it could figure out even one of those two, that that might be sufficient to cause resistance. And so we learned a lot about the timing of resistance and about the nature of it, what what types of things were causing it. Um, And so that's really informing us now about how to uh, move ahead with a better um, sort of combination. Yeah, I mean, the liquid biopsy work can really guide treatment for women with metastatic breast cancer. Yeah, I think that's right. It's, um, it can enable us to know what mutations are present, uh, which can guide our therapies. It can tell us when, you know, why things aren't working when they aren't, um, and perhaps more in the future. And where's the heart of your research right now? Yeah, there's two kinds of, I'd say, big streams of research that are going on in my lab. First, we are trying to understand um, what is the full sort of program, that is estrogen talks to the estrogen receptor, the estrogen receptor talks to the cell cycle, the cell cycle talks to um, the transcriptional program. Now, I know that's a lot of terminology, but but there's a program. It's not just one gene. It's it's a whole pathway to change a cell from normal to cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, What are all those steps and in a resistant cell, where in those steps did they become resistant? Because that tells you where you can attack with another drug, maybe a second drug. So we're trying to understand the, the program better so that we can deal with resistance. Because I think if you can give two drugs in the program, it's very hard for the cancer to outsmart that. If you can give three drugs in the program, it's almost impossible for the drug to outsmart that. And we've learned that with you know, antimicrobial resistance, antibacterial resistance, um, that if you can really um, target uh, things in a way that make it harder for the cell to evolve out of, then um, they don't come up with those solutions, yeah. And the second is that is what I just said. There's this evolution that's happening. The cancers are developing new mutations, mm. Um they're changing. There's this whack-a-mole sort of phenomenon, right? You, you, you hit the cell, the cancer with one drug, and then another tumor pops up, and then you hit it with that one with another drug, and another pops up. Why? Because the the cancer is evolving. It's changing, and there's some basis for that. The other cells in our body aren't evolving. The cancer cells are evolving. How are they evolving? What's the process that's allowing them to change and adapt? to our therapies. If we can figure that out, if we can develop anti-evolutionary sorts of medicines, then maybe we can just stick with the one drug and then block evolution. And what's the hypothesis, what's the status um, of the anti-evolutionary drugs? 
Well, we're not at a drug stage yet, but we are um, increasingly understanding better um, what are the sort of trajectories of cancers? How do they evolve? What is um, and what we're what we're doing is doing um, essentially a lot of um, human genome projects on cancer cells. We're doing lots and lots of DNA sequencing, not just once, but over time to say how did this cancer evolve? What, what was the change? What were the changes? And then if you look back at those changes, you might interpret and understand what processes fueled them. So. Um, not in the realm of breast cancer commonly, but if you look at um, a lung cancer, you often see the imprints of smoking uh, on the DNA. That is the types of mutations that smoking induces leaves a signature. Mm -hmm. Similarly, if you look at melanomas, you will see uh, an imprint, a signature of UV sunlight damage. And so we're looking for those kinds of imprints to tell us what kinds of things are changing. How is this cancer changing compared to that one? And ultimately that might lead us, that's leading us, I, I would say, to knowing the evolutionary process. And then we can go after it. And is the work you're describing, is this around, I believe, is it the FOXA1 gene mutation? Is that is that the work that you're talking about right now or is that separate work? Um, I'd say that's related. It, more of the work is on, um, for instance, this um, ESR1 mutation. Um, again, that's something that evolves. That doesn't happen at the beginning of breast cancer. That happens over time, typically with therapy. Um, and another are these um, mutations in something like called FAT1, for instance. That's another one that seems to arise over time. Um, so these are, uh, and the third one I would say is P10. That's another one that we recently published on. But these are all things that seem to be induced um, um, and not present necessarily at the very get-go. And is there any guidance or is there any practice, anything that, that you've seen where if that patients can do that, that can reduce risk towards resistance or it's it's just it's irrespective uh, you know just talk about another thing out of one's control this is just another thing that's out of one's control yeah this is not something that it's um because we ate something or because we you know exposed ourselves to this that that we see these things happen these are intrinsic to the cancer and um unfortunately no this is sort of out of control, but also I would say um, not not something one also should blame themselves for, so to speak. And sometimes people do that; they'll blame themselves. Oh, I yeah. shouldn't have done this or that, and that's not the case. This is unfortunately um, just the nature of these cancers. Yeah, I think that's an important uh, lesson for all folks to to keep in mind. About you, how did you get into this? And and I mean. Going back, where, where did you grow up? I, I saw that you you know you were educated, I think, in in North Carolina at Wake Forest, and uh, then maybe maybe another school in North Carolina as well. Um, but but was it always science for you? Was it always research? Even going back before university, was this uh, always where you ended up? Where you knew you would end up? 
Yeah, I um, I'd always been interested in science, and my my father's a physician. Um, uh, he did nuclear medicine uh, when I was growing up in Miami, so I was exposed um, to to that um, from the get go. Um, and in in college, I was really fascinated by uh, chemistry and biology, and so I went, I actually pursued a PhD in biochemistry as mm. my first stop. I didn't go to medical school. Um, and then while I was in my graduate training working on yeast uh, cell biology, we were studying this pathway. Uh, and at the time we were studying this pathway, it was also being found that that same pathway that was controlling yeast mating was also being mutated in cancers. Mm. I was like, wow, that's pretty interesting. The same exact pathway, same set of proteins and it plays a role in some cancers. I wish our understandings could inform that. And I think that's when I realized I wanted to have a medical uh, medical research sort of um, bent towards what my career. And so that's then I went to medical school and always with the intent of really um, doing uh, sort of patient-centered research. And, you know, that insight that you just had that inspired you, the seeing an activity in one area of, of work and of life and applying it or making it, you know, ha- having it make you wonder about another part. I've got to say one of the most interesting things that, that I've learned in these conversations is how leading researchers like you connect work across cancers and across different types of, of medicine. Are, hmm. Do you, do you find that? I mean, I understand you were, you know, that was at a different stage in your life and you were taking one area of, you know, research that was taking you, you know, in one direction and it opened up a whole other door for you. Part of your work today requires you to be aware of and, and interact with different types of cancers. Is it the same thing? Are you still, um, you know, items that you're learning about one area of cancer, is that helping inform your work in breast cancer as well? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we, um, we've we really benefited so much by that sort of multidisciplinary approach to, to science. And so uh, there are countless examples. I mean, one huge area in cancer has been the sort of understanding of immunology yeah. and then the potential for using understanding immunology towards developing immune-based uh, cancer therapeutics, um, you know, and that's now become its own field. And I think a lot of these are sort of these bridge fields that as you study very carefully one area, cell biology, and then you study uh, another area, uh, you realize that some of the findings in one area will inform the other. So it's been, uh, it's it's what's exciting, it's in it truly brings innovation to what we're doing. What role has BCRF played in your research? Yeah, so BCRF um, has been really essential in, I'd say, two big ways I think about right now. One is just giving you me a platform to explore um, new and innovative ideas. So, mm. um if we have an idea um, and want to try something, you know, BCRF recognizes that, um, you know, 
that the only way we're going to develop really new tech, new technologies, new treatments is, is you know, the spark of an idea. And um, so BCRF, by the way it uh, funds us, obviously it wants us to fund really rigorous and, and good sides, but it wants us to do things that are a little outside the box too. And, and so, you know, as an example, developing um, technologies to study cancer by a blood test as opposed to mm. by a tumor biopsy, that was something that, you know, I, I didn't have a great deal of prior work on. Um, but we had an idea and others had a technology and we worked with them. Um, and, and just having that funding from BCRF to be able to explore that allowed us to find, for instance, the ESR1 mutation was something that we widely see in um, uh, blood tests. And now, you know, blood tests are being used a lot for following cancers. But early on, many years ago, that was not something that was um, I could get a lot of funding for, so to speak. So I think innovation is one big area. And the second is just providing a, um, a, a network of uh, investigators who can help each other out. So if I need, um, I'm studying a type of cancer, well, someone else might be um, developing models and that's what they do. They're developing all sorts of different models um, and they're BCRF investigators. So they'll, um, give me access to all their models. And um, that's happened multiple times for me where I didn't have this specific type of mutation in the cancer models I had, uh, but a BCRF person had. And so we're all, you know, on the same team and, and trying to collaborate. Um, and that's been really a phenomenal resource for my lab and, and our work. Well, thank you. Thank you for that collaboration. Uh, thank you for the work that you do uh, in your lab and every day. Thank you. Thanks for the chance to talk about all this. That was my conversation with Dr. Surat Chandralapati. My thanks to Dr. Chandralapati for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.